for years, I've always loved a good uh, crime thriller. Um, recently, I've got on board a little bit with the, um, the trend at the moment, which is true crime. Uh, they tell you the story of something that happened uh, and analyze the trial, normally showing that a great injustice has taken place. Uh, one of the first programs I watched was An Innocent Man, uh, a documentary based on a book by John Grisham. A uh, true story of two men in the same town wrongly convicted of a crime. It's uh, a bestseller and now they've decided it needs to be made into an eight-part miniseries. Looks at all the aspects of the case, looks at the evidence, uh, looks at the witnesses, looks at the judge, looks at the lawyers, the police, analyzes every aspect as they want to search for truth. Uh, it's a bit of a cultural phenomenon at the moment. Simon mentioned it in a, in a sermon a few weeks ago as well. Of the top 10 podcasts ever, nine of them are true crime stories. It's ridiculous. Uh, why? Who knows? Um, psychologists trying to answer it. Possibly because we're curious people who like to solve mysteries. Um, we want to find out what happened and why. Uh, it may also be our inherent inbuilt desire for justice. We get riled up, don't we, whenever there's an injustice, um, especially when it's against us. I think though at a base level, we do just love a good story, um, an intrigue, a drama, which makes us think, which makes us feel something. Uh, and here in John's Gospel, we have the original true crime story. We have a master storyteller taking us into this in the first century. You can sense uh, the drama, the intrigue, can't you? I thought the video showed that well. Uh, the characters at play, they're rich, they're layered, and the action is really dramatic. And as I prayed, you may have heard this story a thousand times. Um, Maybe your first time. Either way, let's not let this just wash over us today. We're going to look at this story in depth over the next four weeks. Uh, and today we're going in true, true crime style to look at various players in the story. But first, uh, we need to see, as all crime stories start with what the charge is. Why is this man Jesus on trial? What is the charge? In verse 29, and do keep your Bibles open with me as we look down. Verse 29, as we go through the story, we meet Pontius Pilate, our judge. We're going to look at him in depth a little bit later. And he asks a very obvious question. What charges are you bringing against this man? He asked of the Jewish leaders. The passage we read is peppered with questions, isn't it? There's 12 questions. 11 from Pilate, 1 from Jesus. And here we get Pilate's first question. Down in verse 29, what charges are you bringing against this man? It's a simple question. It's one Pilate would ask every day. He would have held court most days with different disputes going on in the area. But the interaction is then anything but regular. Did you hear any charge from the Jews? It's kind of a non-charged charge, isn't it? Uh, We've heard these kind of charges all the time. Imagine um, your kid comes up to you and says, Daddy, can you do something about my sister? Uh, and you press on and you go, well, what, what exactly has your sister done? And you can never quite pin it down. They're just annoyed by the sister. <laughs> it's a bit like that here. We see the Jewish leaders respond. What is the charge? Verse 30. Well, if he weren't a criminal, we'd not have handed him over to you. It's not really a charge. Um, it's a bit like saying, well, he has a guilty look about him, doesn't he? And then in verse 38, we get a really telling response from religious leaders. Verse 38. I don't mean verse 38. I might mean verse 38. Religious leaders say we have no right to execute anyone. We have no right to execute anyone. That, Pilate asks what the charge is. The Jews say, well, we brought him to you. We brought him to you. And he says, Pilate says, take him away. There's no charge here. And they go, no, because we don't have the authority to execute him. It's odd. Jesus is not being brought for a fair trial here, is he? No, he's being brought to be killed. 
They don't care about truth. They don't care about justice. And then we get to verse 33. We see that Pilate senses the actual issue. And he asks, in verse 33, he asks to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He's obviously heard it. The Jews have obviously said that to him. This is the public charge against Jesus. The Jews probably thought this is what would get him executed. Because in first century Palestine, the Romans were in charge. We see that Pilate is the governor of Judea, appointed by Caesar to rule on his behalf. And he'd be really concerned about anyone else claiming to be king. He wanted to quell any rebellion. And undoubtedly, the Jews have said that Jesus is claiming to be a king to try and get him killed. They're claiming he's a threat to the Roman governor, that he's looking to be a revolutionary who should be quelled, executed. And so the question here, the charge and the question for us today is going to be, is Jesus king? And if he is king, what type of king is he? What is the scope of his authority? And it's the same question for us. And today the response is often similar to what we see in the story. We see three different types of responses. We're going to look at them a little bit. It's, firstly, we see the question really debated quite seriously. Jesus and Pilate, they debate it seriously. And maybe today you want to debate this question seriously. Then at the start of chapter 19, we see it spoken about mockingly. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. He's ironically hailed the king of the Jews. And sometimes it's just all about ironically. Pilate does this in verse 14 of chapter 19. Hail, you're king of the Jews. Look at him. Pathetic. And our friends may be like this. You may be like this as you sit here today. Some willing to engage in debate. Some mocking us for our faith. Did this really happen? Did this man Jesus really go on trial because he believed he was the one true king? What difference does this make if it is true? So the charge before the court today and the charge before us, in some senses the jury, is, is Jesus the king? That's the charge. Let's look at the defendant. Now, I only think it's fair to hear from the defendant. Uh, I think this is controversial in terms of judicial norms. Um, I'm not sure when the defendant normally speaks, but I think, having read a lot of John Grisham, they don't normally speak right now. Um, but Pilate asks him directly in verse 33, is he the king? Look down on me. Jesus doesn't give a straight answer, does he? Jesus is wanting to define the terms by which Pilate asks the question. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? He's saying, are you asking me if I'm a king in the Roman terms of a king? Am I a political king? Or are you actually asking the Jewish leaders this question? Are you asking if I'm claiming to be God's king? Well, as corrupt as they're understanding what that means, yes, I am. You see, the Jews were on the lookout for the king, the Messiah, the anointed king, the one who would come and restore them to their former glories, repel all their enemies and oppressors, including the Romans. They just didn't think or didn't want Jesus to be that king. He didn't stack up to what they expected, a mighty military leader. And then we see a key verse, verse 36. The key verse for us today is Jesus answers that question. He goes, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is making it crystal clear he's, clear he's not a political revolutionary. He's not of this world. He's not fighting to protect an earthly kingdom. There's no sign anywhere of his followers. They've abandoned him. My kingdom is not of this world. What he means is not that his kingdom has no bearing on this world, but that he's not come from it. We see it elsewhere called the kingdom of heaven in other books. The king has come down to influence this world, to draw people to God and invite them to live under his rule and reign. And Pilate, like any good ju judge, he's sharp, isn't he? 
He understands from his implication that he has a kingdom, that he's then a king. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, verse 37, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is saying he's the king who's come to tell the truth. In one line, he sums up his whole ministry. He's saying the reason he was born is to tell the truth about the world. If you're here today and you're looking for meaning, if you're looking for answers to lots of questions, Jesus is saying he is the answer. He's saying if we want to know the truth about ourselves, the truth about the world, the truth about God, here is where you find it. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It's outrageous, isn't it? C.S. Lewis rightly says that anyone who made these claims is either mad, bad or God. Jesus is saying he is the truth. He's come to tell the truth, the truth about God and eternity through his word. And he's challenging Pilate and he's challenging us to listen to him and become part of his kingdom. Do you notice that? Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Because if Jesus is actually king, what does that actually mean for us? If we actually think this is true, do we live as if Jesus is our king? Do I search the Bible to see what it would look like to live as my king would want? Do I look to honour him and obey him? Do I look to tell people how good our king is? Will we listen to the king? You see, he's not a king like our queen is the queen. I love the queen, but she's pretty powerless, isn't she? Um, she really is. I think technically she can shut down parliament. She probably should. But would she? Could she actually? More than likely, if she tried, then the next day we wouldn't have a monarchy, would we? Instead, we'd have a very rich family living in the centre of London. God's king is not like the queen. He is the king. The ruler, the authority, the one in charge, the creator king. He's a just and a loving king. He's not a dictatorial tyrant, but he's still one to respect. Not like we respect the queen, like a doting grandparent, but as someone with real authority. No offence, queen, I'll probably get shot for that. With real power, somebody worthy of our love and our devotion. He's a king with a kingdom. And he came to testify to the truth. And he says everyone on the side of truth listens to him. And the challenge here from Jesus is, will you listen and obey me? Jesus is saying, if you're not listening and obeying me, then you're not on the side of truth. It's clear, we know where we stand now, don't we? If you or I are not listening to and obeying Jesus of Nazareth, we're not on the side of truth. It's strong words. Jesus is the king, but not as we know it. He's God's king sent to earth to declare the truth about God. And notice how this has always been the plan. And this was, when I was prepping, the most mind-blowing thing for me just to remember. You see, uh, from my extensive crime reading, um, a lot of heinous crimes often seem accidental, or, or at least maybe not planned or thought through, often a fit of passion. But for Jesus here, it's truly deliberate. Verse 37, read with me again. You say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born, the reason I came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. He's saying from the beginning of time he would do this. Earlier in the Gospel in John 10, Jesus says this exactly when he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 18th century preacher Octavius Winslow, he put it like this. He said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate. We're going to look at him in a minute for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It's ridiculous when you think about it. And 
And can we just pause, let's just pause and marvel at this for a minute. Using John's words earlier in his gospel, John 3.16, he says this, he says, For God so loved the world, the world that's you and, that me, and that's me, that he gave. He gave, it's a deliberate act, it's a present, a gift of love, a sacrifice. He gave his one and only son. Precious, glorious, his son. He gave him that whoever, anyone, that's you, that's me, that's our, our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, our unbelieving family, whoever it might be, whoever believes in him, and that's all it is, just believe and trust in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. What a gift that is. It's deliberate. He gave a deliberate planned death, a deliberate planned, as we saw in the video, flogging. What type of king is he? He's a king who in a few verses claims to be able to call heaven's angelic army to stop Pilate and yet chooses not to. He allows himself to be flogged, to be mocked, to be slapped, to be killed. Whatever king he is, this isn't the, what the world thinks about authority, is it? This is a king willing to do something extraordinary for us. God, God himself who created all things. Remember that last week, didn't we? We saw how we were created intricately in his own image. He loved us so much that he sent his only son to die, to be put on trial, to be whipped, to be flogged, to be mocked, to be spat on, to be killed. Why? We see it here, we see it later. For us, to take the punishment we deserve. It's amazing. This is the king we worship. Do you worship that king? It's amazing. When we stop and we pause, plan from the beginning of time. So that's for defence. It's not really a defence in some senses. Uh, and then we come to the judge. What does the judge think? Well, uh, these pages tell us of one event, but they're included because Pilate and his reactions are typical of so many of us when faced with the question of, is Jesus king? I think we see three things quickly as we look at the judge. We see Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He says this three times. Like the Jews trying to do, we might want to just dismiss Jesus as a leader in the first century, a political troublemaker, but Pilate's verdict is damning about that. He can't let us say that as a fact because he would know all about political threat, but he says it not once or twice, but three times, he finds no basis for a charge against him. John wants us to see there is no basis to the charge. Jesus has done nothing deserving of the punishment. He wants us to see that Jesus is not breaking any laws. John 1 Jesus' baptism, we get John the Baptist saying this. He says, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The hearers at that time, they would have thought all about the old covenant, the old sacrifice system. People would bring their spotless lamb to sacrifice on the altar. Their sins would be laid on the lamb and the lamb had to be pure and without defect, perfect, and it would then be killed. When John points out again and again there was no charge, Pilate says again and again he is innocent, we hear clearly that Jesus was spotless, he was blameless, he was pure. When Pilate asks, verse 35, what, what have you done? What is it you have done? Well, the reader shouts, we've read through 18 chapters of John, nothing. I've done nothing bad. Look at all the good he's done. And this same question comes to us, doesn't it? If we were asked this question, what have you done? It exposes us, doesn't it? If we were asked that question, we'd, we'd all have to, in all honesty, go, well, God, you've seen me do this. You've seen me say that. None of us could answer that question purely. I've heard um, it's a fun trick to play with your kids. 
uh, run up to them a little bit mad and say, what have you done? You'll quickly find out all sorts of things, things you didn't even know were going on. What have you done? Jesus is the only human who can answer when asked that, I've done everything pleasing to God. Every day, every minute, every hour, I've lived to please the Father. I am the spotless lamb. It's an important question. If we can only answer the question of what have we done with a mix of good and bad, then imagine if somebody could say, I'm blameless. Well, that'd be hope for us, wouldn't it? This man could do something we can't do. He's perfect. He'd be worth looking into, wouldn't he? Well, for Pilate, he wasn't. Why? He knew his innocence, but he also knew the fear of man. See it down in verse 7 of chapter 19. Verse 7 and 8. We see the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He wasn't more afraid of Jesus because he claimed to be God. No more. No, he was more afraid of the Jews because he knows they'll settle for no more than blood now. And his political career is in the balance. We've already seen in history how he had to quail one rebellion and now here comes another. Nothing but the fear of man can explain how contradictory Pilate is. He's innocent and yet I'm going to flog him. In verse 38, we see he tries to release Jesus and then treats him on a par with Barabbas, a revolutionary. It's bizarre. And then he gets stranger. As I just said, Pilate has Jesus, this man who he's declared innocent. At the start of chapter 19, he has him viciously beaten. People used to die from this kind of beating. Then after he flogs him in verses 1 to 3, in verse 4 he says, look, this man who I've just had viciously flogged, this man who is innocent, I've just had him beaten for you. Does that, does that do it for you, Jewish leaders? Are you happy now? Can, can we just go and live in peace? And the answer is no, crucify him, crucify him. It's odd. And it goes on, having heard Jesus claim to be the son of God, we see in verse 8, Pilate goes back to Jesus and asks him where he comes from. He was even more afraid, verse 9, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. What does Jesus say? Does he say anything? He says absolutely nothing. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Why wouldn't Jesus just give him an answer? Jesus who's so patient with his pretty thick disciples. He says absolutely nothing to this man Pilate when he asks him a question. But when you look through the Gospels, you'll find he rarely gives answers to triflers, like the Pharisees or Herod. Pilate gets no answer because he won't obey it. We've already seen that. He's seen his innocence. And Pilate asks in verse 38, what is truth? It's maybe a big question you have. And the problem isn't often what is truth. The problem is then following it when you know it. Usually that's the problem for all of us. We talk about the evidence being so confusing, but that's rarely the problem. Often it's more where the truth leads us. The fault of Pilate here is not the failure to spot the Messiah, but failure to follow what he knew. He was dominated by fear of others. He wasn't willing to investigate it seriously because he was fearful. It would have been massively awkward, wouldn't it, and inconvenient for Pilate, the governor of Judea, to follow the truth. But it often is incredibly awkward and inconvenient. He would have lost his job, definitely. Caesar's the only god to the Romans at that time. He would have probably lost his wife. He would have lost his authority. He would have lost loads of stuff. It'd be the same for us. Maybe that's what's stopping you, putting your trust in Jesus. Will we count the cost? It could cost us a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a friendship, a career. It rarely enhances the career to become a Christian, does it? And there's a striking lesson in this trial 
So many people have it in their heads. Jesus is always available. He's always knocking. Pilate had a chance and he refused to follow it. And then he got silence. If you're finding it difficult to find the truth, I wonder if in fact we're not obeying the truth we have got. Which of us doesn't have a fear of man? Is Jesus king? Why can't you answer the question straight? Is it finding the facts or is it more the implications of what it might mean for you if it is true? So we see Pilate, he knew Jesus was innocent. He knew the fear of man. Finally, he sat on the fence. And it isn't comfortable. That cow does not look in a good way. There are two big figures debating, the chief priest and Pilate. And the chief priest is an enemy of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they're devious, they're contradictory. Notice it right at the start. Go back to chapter 18. Right at the start, they insist on not breaking the Sabbath rules by going into the house of a non-Jew. But <laughs> they go about trying to kill an innocent man. John often writes with beautiful irony, and here we see them doing their best to avoid uncleanness so that they can eat the Passover whilst they're killing him who is alone the true Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, the innocent spotless lamb who from the time of Moses was killed to commemorate the passing over of God's judgment on the people who trusted in him. Pilate, though, unlike the chief priest here, is not, he's not an enemy, really. He's not an enemy like the Jews seem to be here. He tries to set him free. He seems for Jesus. And then we get to verse 12, and we get a bit of checkmate from the Jewish leaders as we see him stranded on this fence. Jewish leaders, well, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Hey, Pilate, you follow Caesar, don't you? He's your boss. Well, this guy claims to be a king. You've heard him. So if you don't have him killed, you're no longer a friend of Caesar. Checkmate. And we see in verse 15, after Pilate mockingly calls this bloody beaten man a king, the Jewish leaders despicably betray God themselves. They go, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish leaders here don't only disown Jesus as Messiah, they disown any idea that God may have a king for them. These guys, the Jewish leaders here, were enemies of Jesus. Pilate, though, was merely a weak fence-sitter. He knew he was innocent. He had him flogged. He knew he was innocent. He eventually lets him get killed. Now, I don't think there'll be many, if any, enemies here today, but I'm speaking now to fence-sitting pilots. John's message here is you can't sit on the fence. I think um, of my marriage vows. Imagine me sitting on the fence like pilots. Will you take Caroline to be your wife? It's hard for me to give a neutral response. You can't say, well, sure. Um, I'd love to say yes. Uh, I can't really say anything against her actually I'm thinking about it um poof, that'd be wonderfully inadequate wouldn't it when asked would I like Caroline to be my wife you need to say yes either Jesus is your king or he isn't you can't sit on the fence so then finally we get to the jury how will you respond where do you see yourself in the story are you like Pilate sitting on the fence fearing what people might think? Are you like the Jewish leaders killing an innocent man? Are you like the angry mob, the mocking soldiers who flogged him? We always like to sit ourselves, don't we, in the nicest place when we place ourselves into a story. We like to think of ourselves as a hero. We watch a film or a TV show and we go, oh, I'd never do that. Not me. Me? 
Ah, oh, when, when all this was going on, I would have been shouting at the back, let him go, he's innocent, that Jesus, let him go. I'd be the one at the back. Everyone else was yelling to crucify him, but I'd definitely be at the back going, no, nah. we're flattering ourselves if we don't see ourselves like these people who killed Jesus. Because apart from God's grace, that's where we'd be. Everyone abandoned him, notice the lack of his disciples. So why wouldn't we? We're going to sing it in a moment. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. That's next week's talk. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We all want to be kings and queens of our own lives, but Jesus here, the truth here says, no, follow me. I alone am the king worth following. Don't sit on the fence. The only way to have forgiveness is to not sit on the fence and acknowledge Jesus as our king. Our key verse for this series, it's on the cards you've got with you. It comes from the next chapter as John outlines his whole purpose for writing. Take this home, memorise it. It says here at the second half of this verse, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The trial of Jesus forces a decision from us. We can either reject him or we can believe he is the king the Messiah, the Son of God, listen to him and accept him and have life in his name. Those are the only two options. And the question of this Easter time is, what will it be for us? Let me pray. We're then going to sing and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, thank you for the clarity of John as he explains the story. Thank you for the reminder that you are the king. Thank you for the outrageous truth of your deliberate act of coming to declare the truth, of coming from the beginning of time to die, to suffer in our place. Lord, we don't deserve that, and yet you chose to do that for us. We praise you and thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you that you promise that if we believe in you, if we believe you are the king, if we believe you are the son of God, we may have life in your name. Lord, thank you. That's all it is. We just need to believe in you. There's nothing we can do. But we thank you that you offer that to us now. Help us, I pray, in every aspect of our lives to live with you as our king. In your precious name. Amen.